Okay, this week I'm speaking to Adam Eason. Adam Eason is the principal of the Anglo-European College of Therapeutic Hypnosis. He's a university lecturer and currently undertaking his PhD on the nature of self-hypnosis. He has published many books in the field of hypnosis and is considered a world-leading expert on evidence-based hypnosis and hypnotherapy. In this conversation, we discuss what is hypnosis, is there such a thing as hypnotic trance, and the myths surrounding hypnosis and hypnotherapy. We talk about the science supporting its efficacy and application, and the difference between hypnosis and meditation. And also, Adam will give you some information about how you can hypnotize yourself. On a personal note, I'm really glad to be able to speak to Adam. I actually trained with his school nearly a decade ago, and it set me on the path that I'm now on. So I'm internally grateful for Adam's tuition and mentorship, and I consider him a friend. As per usual, all the links will be in the show notes. So let's get on with it. Cool, right, so now I'm joined by Adam Eason. Adam, when am I going to have to call you Dr. Eason? Probably in about 18 months or so. Um, I, I probably won't actually adopt the full title in that way. I'll probably be opting for Adam Eason PhD. But I, I have another paper in for, for peer review at the moment. It's been, it's been reviewed once and um, it, it's, uh, I've resubmitted it. So we're kind of about, about, about sort of three chapters in, if you will. And we've just got uh, sort of final, final parts of two experiments to continue doing. Obviously, labs aren't open at the moment because we're in the midst of lockdown. But once we've, once we've done those two experiments, um, finished those two experiments and written up the results, drawn our conclusions, um, I'll then have to sort of defend, defend my, my work um, before it's awarded. Yeah. So Fantastic. Fantastic. We'll come back to that later, but I'd mm. just like to sort of explore what sort of drew you into hypnosis to begin with. Well, um, I don't have a big elongated origins story to tell you other than um, um, somebody really close to me had had some hypnotherapy um, himself. And as a result uh, of the results and the success that he had, I went to see the exact same therapist. And, and, and had some really good, had a really good experience and, and, and derived a sort of moderate amount of benefit myself. And um, that, that particular individual ran self-hypnosis courses and a diploma course. And, and I went and studied with the, 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 this particular therapist um, in, in what was actually, um, um, in, in hindsight, a, a thoroughly awful education in the field of <laughs> hypnotherapy. Um, but, but at the time I loved it and lapped it up uh, readily. And, um, and, and, you know, and really that is, that is the story. It was, you know, I had some, some psychological challenges as a younger man, as I was coming out of university and, and went and helped to deal with them with hypnotherapy and thought, this is quite cool. You know, I, I really like this and I really like what, I, what, what, what can be done with it. And, and, and that was that really. Fantastic. So let's dive in at the deep end here. Yeah. What is hypnosis? Well, it's it's a bit of a controversial subject because and, and one of the things I'm, I, I'm reluctant to kind of spoon feed a singular perspective as far as hypnosis is concerned, because even where I'm at with with not, not, not just my belief system, but where the, the, the vast majority of the evidence has kind of drawn me to and where I'm at currently, that that that, that is not an immovable position you know I'm, I'm still flexible on that and and wh where i am at wh which i will explain in a moment is is not without some criticism itself but i i very much favor what we refer to as a socio-cognitive perspective of hypnosis and and put in its most simplest terms it's whereby we refer to hypnosis as being a skill a cognitive skill and this skill um, it ultimately is is a series of very ordinary psychological modulating factors such as expectancy adopting a role engaging one's imagination as vividly as we possibly can experiencing a sense of non-volition in response to suggestions and, and when all of these things sort of come together and are corralled they raise they've been proven to raise suggestibility the reason that it's referred to as a socio-cognitive perspective that the socio component is 
that the kind of role that we are adopting, we're, we're adopting a role of receptive recipient um, as far as hypnosis is concerned, although recipient is rather misleading because it, hypnosis is not something that's actually being done to us. We are, we are the active, engage, uh, um, um, active agent um, engaging in the process, you know, engaging in the skill. And then the cognitive component is, is this, this part about a mindset whereby you, you adopt a very particular type of mindset based upon these modulating factors that I mentioned earlier, and that raises suggestibility. So that when a suggestion is delivered to us and offered up to us by a hypnotist, or when we deliver it to ourselves, it, it, it becomes sticky, if you like. It, it, it kind of sticks as an idea, and, and we become responsive to that sticky idea that, that, that in the way in which um, happens to us quite naturally a lot of the time anyway. But it, it, it's certainly not the way that it's typically um, explained. You know, there, there's a lot of evidence and a lot of science to support this particular stance. Again, it's not without its criticism. And I've, I've attempted to make it um, as simple as I possibly can with that explanation. Mm. That, that explanation actually is the one that I give. I'm currently working um, with, with Great Ormond Street Hospital, um, for example. And I lecture at, at both at Bournemouth University and um, at the Royal Society of Medicine. And, and, and whether it be um, patients or students or, or really seasoned, you know, high-end professional health professionals, I typically describe it in, in the same way as, 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 this, as a skill, a cognitive skill, which is a far cry from the way in which it's typically explained and, and the way in which the vast majority of hypnotherapy educators teach it um, in, in, in a rather singular, old-fashioned, unproven and unsubstantiated way, such as referring to it as an altered state of consciousness, for example, and things like that. So touching upon that, where does trance come in? Because often people, when we talk about hypnosis, think about trance, they think about uh, that altered state of consciousness. They're thinking in terms of a unconscious or subconscious mind being spoken to by some verbal trickery. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so can you unpack all okay. of that? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot there um, to discuss. I mean, first of all, the, the word trance has become synonymous with hypnosis, but, but also incorrectly. Um, the word trance tends to suggest, oh, the word trance tends to obfuscate as far as I'm concerned, you know. Um, um, it tends to suggest something mysterious, um, um, intangible. Stephen Lynn, um, who's a very prolific hypnosis researcher and academic based in the US, um, um, even, even did a study whereby whereby the word trance reduced people's um, suggestibility because of the because of the nature of it kind of leading to m myth and mystique when when, when the, exactly the same wording was used in every way with two groups of volunteers in a hypnosis study the, the only difference being that the word trance was used to, to explain hypnosis in one group and that word was omitted in in the second group the the, the group with the word that where the word trance was used their, their hypnotizability, that is their, their responsiveness to suggestions was, was reduced. There, there, are some, there are some popular traditions of hypnosis um, in the front line. So the field of NLP uses a particular type of hypnosis, a very small slither of the overall picture by a, a famous hypnotist from the 80s called Milton Erickson. And, and they all refer to hypnosis as being trance. And trance is very misleading, reduces suggestibility. It makes me very uncomfortable even using that word. Um, typically in class, we refer to it as the T word uh, from there onwards, the, after the first day. And we don't really like it to be, to be mentioned in my classes. But yet this idea that, that hypnosis is this sort of altered state of consciousness, that it is, that it is even a state, is, is a very interesting kind of thing to discuss. Because, you know, with, with the, the great advances that we have in neuroscience, with fMRI, with neuroimaging, with PET scans, it's, you know, there's still no signature that says this is hypnosis that's happening to you at the moment. There's no brain signature to identify hypnosis as a, an isolated state, as a unique state. So, 
you know, that and, and a number of other kind of theories have tended to suggest that hypnosis is not, an, is not a special state. It's not a unique state. Actually, it's more of a non-state. Like I said, more of a skill. And so one of the things that, you know, a lot of people that, that, that talk about hypnosis being an altered state of um, consciousness tend to refer to it as, as being dissociation. And a lot of old theories and applications um, um, and explanations of hypnosis refer to hypnosis as being like you are dissociated from yourself and you've handed over executive control to, uh, to, to the hypnotist um, who's kind of taken the reins as far as you're concerned and is delivering suggestions um, that you then respond to without volition. And this, this is what we refer to as the classic hypnosis suggestion effect coined by a man called Weizenhofer. But so, you know, I know we will speak about self-hypnosis later on. So self-hypnosis, you know, in our labs here at Bournemouth University, we've, we've proven self-hypnosis to exist first and foremost. And second of all, you know, it's a thing. It's a thing in and of itself. And we'll kind of speak about it as a separate entity. So one of the things about, about you know, self-hypnosis, if self-hypnosis even exists, what does that say about dissociative strategies and so dissociative explanations? Because if you are handing over executive control to another party or to someone else who picks up the reins, then how can you explain self-hypnosis in those terms? You know, you, 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 you ultimately are, are the one in control. So when you're engaged in hypnosis, you are the active agent. Sometimes you are less aware of it or your awareness is disabled and suspended. And there are some theories of hypnosis that, that talk about that. So, but typically on the front line then, as well as this idea of dissociation being used to explain hypnosis, exactly as you said earlier, a lot of people explain hypnosis in terms of the unconscious mind, that each of us has like a, like an iceberg, whereby um, the tip of the iceberg is, is the, 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 the conscious mind. And when we, we use hypnosis to access the, 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 this vast resource, this sort of benevolent force that resides um, beneath us. And, um, and it's characterized, this, this unconscious mind is characterized as being a vast storehouse of memories. Uh, you know, it's great knowledge and wisdom and that it processes information differently from our conscious mind. And it knows more than we know that we know, you know, this kind of stuff. And, and ultimately, this is, this, this is misleading. I mean, first and foremost, if you were to look at the academic literature on, on hypnosis, which the vast majority of hypnosis professionals don't, um, but if you were to look at academic literature, it's bereft of this notion you know, the only, the only people that, that, that refer to this conscious, unconscious mind model and explain hypnosis in those terms are frontline hypnotherapists. Um, um, you, you go all the way through, you know, you know, the seminal literature, proper academic literature, and hypnosis is never explained in terms of a conscious and an unconscious mind and, 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 and accepting it in this way. So, you know, when people say to me, you know, your mind is like an iceberg, um, my, my highbrow retort is, well, no, it isn't. Um, and, and it's misleading and, and it's potentially problematic. You know, so you know, for me personally, I, I, I no longer discuss conscious and unconscious at all. Although, you know, my first training was, was whereby I was, you know, I, I had that, uh, you know, I, I had that model taught to me, like it was a fact. And that's the problem with, with a lot of hypnotherapy training is that they're taught a singular perspective, a singular model rather than both sides of any debate, you know, and, and tend not to offer up much critique. So like I said earlier, I simply explained hypnosis to my clients in particular as a mindset that is comprising certain attitudes, expectancies, assuredness, which then becomes a learnable skill. And, and this has much more support amongst the, the academic fraternity in the field of hypnosis. hypnosis. So th this notion of a subconscious mind, it, you know, it's just not forged part of an academic's understanding of hypnosis. You know, neuroscience, cognitive scientists firmly dispute this notion of dualism, that of us having a conscious and subconscious mind. 
Um, you know, we, 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 there's not been discovered to be any center of consciousness. Mm. What I think is even more problematic is when, you know, hypnotherapists say things like, you know, that they are connecting with the subconscious mind to rework patterns of thoughts and behaviors. It tends to suppose that once you've left the therapeutic relationship, you know, the working model of the mind is literally and, and universally accurate, this idea. And, and a lot of people treat that as if it's empirical truth because their therapists told them that we have these two totally separate minds doing totally separate things. And it's oversimplistic and it's potentially misleading and one that unnecessarily limits our progress in understanding both human psychology and hypnosis in particular. And, and, and probably the best way in which I can explain this in, in terms that isn't just gonna, that's not gonna send your listeners to sleep. If you think about, you know, we all tend to commonly say that we have thoughts, we have ideas, we have memories, we have images in our head, we, we, we have perceptions and so on. Like, like they are things that we carry around in a wheelbarrow. We can say, you know, I have just had an excellent idea, or I had a great thought today. I have a vivid image of this person. I have happy memories of my childhood. In reality, what we're describing here are activities that we've engaged in, processes. And this is the key word, processes, rather than things. Processes that we've done. It's more appropriate to say that we think rather than that there are things that we have called thoughts. We do a process of thinking. We don't own thoughts. Likewise, we, we imagine rather than having images. We remember rather than having things called memories. When we stop remembering, the memories don't go anywhere. They're not stored away as files are stored in a, in a filing cabinet. It, it might seem that way when, when we're remembering. But, you know, if we referred to, you know, if, if you were to shake hands, the, the, the example that I give often is, is if you were to shake hands with someone, you know, this physical activity that you do regularly, such as shaking hands, well, when, when we're not in the midst of a pandemic anyway, and um, when it's okay to shake hands and, and, you know, you might say that what you are doing is a, a handshake, you are doing a handshake, you might refer to that handshake and describe it in, in a number of different terms, you know, that was a firm handshake or a wet handshake, or a welcoming <laughs> handshake, or a meaningful handshake, and so on. But this doesn't make the action of shaking hands any more real. Once you've stopped shaking hands, you wouldn't ask where the handshake has gone, and then start examining your hand to see where it was, or if it's stored there. When you, when you later shake hands again, you know, you, you, you wouldn't then ask whether the same handshake has been retrieved, or if it's a different handshake, would you, you know? And exactly the same reasoning should be applied to activities of thinking, remembering, imagining, and so on, which are the, um, the, the environment of, of hypnosis. All these things are represented by neural activities that are you know, associated with the conscious experiences that we call having memories, thoughts, images, and so on. So you know, suppose somebody listening to this right now um, thought, okay, you know, I've had enough of, I've had enough of this guy banging on for, for a moment. I'm going to switch this off, but perhaps go and do something else. And then later on, you start to think about some of the ideas that I've been speaking about here. Surely you can only do this if there is something, some representation of this material, a memory that exists in your mind, which you then retrieve, you know, as you would draw from a filing cabinet. And we can say that this is so only in a manner of speaking. A more accurate, potentially less misleading description is to say that, you know, as, as well, when you're listening, neurobiochemical changes are happening and occurring in your brain that enable you in the future to engage in the activity of recalling this material. So, you know, what relevance does all of this happen to have to the concept of the unconscious mind? Well, it's simply that the unconscious mind doesn't exist as a thing. It's not a separate entity. We do processes unconsciously, you know, beyond our awareness. That's, that's not there to be disputed. But, um, you know, at best, this idea of working with an unconscious mind is a metaphor. But it's, you know, it's inaccurate, you know, and it's far, probably far better just to say, you know, you're learning a skill. 
you're learning a skill. It's not really anything to do with consciousness um, and levels of mind. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th th there's much more I can say. I've kind of attempted to make it as concise and simple and succinct as I can, believe it or not. There is much uh, you've, more you've done say. well there, Adam. You've done well. But, but, but it, you know, it, it, it's not really a thing. No. And, and also, oh, also, sorry, sorry. That's all right. No, you carry on. You carry on. Something that's very, very real. You know, if you study um, the work of people like Daniel Kahneman, okay, you mm. know, eminent psychologists, researchers um, who look at heuristics and cognitive biases. Okay, so we all have heuristics. We all have cognitive biases. Um, we cannot not have. These are automatic patterns by which we, we make decisions and we are almost like algorithms that we have. Cognitive biases, you know, like we have confirmation bias mm. where we, we filter information to match our own preferences, for example. So one of the problems I have with this notion of, of the unconscious mind is that certain therapists tell people that their, their unconscious mind is, is all wise and that they should trust it. You must trust your instincts, trust your unconscious mind. But if we were to trust those things, we would be trusting cognitive biases. We would be trusting heuristics. And heuristics and cognitive biases are very often so, so wrong. Now, that's not to say that we, we ignore our intuition and our gut feelings from time to time. But ultimately, we can seek to, 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 to make them better, make them more effective, and not just you know, offer up and extend blind faith. So, you know, I think it's potentially quite dangerous just to say to somebody, especially somebody who's, who's got mental health challenges, who's likely to be in a clinician's office, you know, that they, that they should trust their unconscious mind, which is what happens a great deal in the field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy. Mm. I, th I think it's a, it sounds like it was adopted from my mind I, around the time, obviously, Freudian and Jungian kind of psychology and it worked its way in there. And it seems, as you said, you look at the academia, it doesn't really make its way in there, but it's made itself in sort of the public consciousness. Yeah. I mean, for, for sure, we do things unconsciously, but to say that we've got this kind of benevolent force that is um, an unconscious mind that sort of resides deeper and, and that we're using hypnosis to communicate with that, um, um, it, it, it's fallacious at best, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's just, it's incorrect. How about when that's turned 180 and people often will use language with the subconscious as sort of um, the shadow self to, to use like a Jungian phrase where they believe they're working with it to make it more positive or benevolent in its manner. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I get that. And I get that kind of approach to therapy. But, but, but why not just, just teach people and equip people with effective ways of thinking, effective skills of, mm. of thinking instead, you know, which can do the job just as well, but without so much kind of aura of, of mystique. And I mean, just the fact that you refer, that, that anybody refers to it as the kind of shadow self and so on, um, just, just sounds very, very unagreeable as far as I'm concerned. Your ninja self, your, 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 your loitering in the corner of the room ready to murder someone self. You know, I, I, I get the point you're making and um, I, I don't mean to, to offer up kind of glib, childish, comedic responses to such. But I think there are far better ways to have people, um, you know, alter patterns of thinking, you know, practicing good quality, you know, good, good quality evidence based cognitive restructuring um, can be advanced with hypnosis. I mean, I mean, th th there's a lot of there's a lot of modalities of therapy that when hypnosis is used in an adjunctive capacity, um, advances the efficaciousness of that, that approach as well. Mm. I think often people get caught up that the hypnosis is the therapy, like the outside of a yeah. cap capsule is the drug. It isn't. It's a delivery mechanism. This is how I've always understood and explained it to people I've worked with, that it is, it's a delivery system, but it's the quality of the therapy contained within that so you talk about yeah. sort of other modalities that have been shown to have their efficacy increased by hypnosis what sort of therapies are those I mean, cognitive behavioral approaches to therapy in particular um you know th 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 there are meta-analyses um um to to to, to support that so know, sorry just for the sake of people who may not know what a meta-analysis is can you just tell us what that is 
Yeah, sure. It's, it's basically a study about studies and the statistics from all of those studies get combined to show an overall effect. So it, it's basically somebody uh, has done an academic literature review for you. Um, it's wonderful for people like myself that are, that, that are into research because it means that somebody has reviewed the literature a great deal prior and you can you can look at those findings so there might be a meta-analysis on hypnosis for depressive disorders somebody who's looked at lots and lots of individual studies about depressive disorders and um, collated the findings both statistically and in and interpretively but but you know and typically they'll have a kind of inclusion criteria which might be that you know all the studies included in this review must have been randomized controlled trials, for example. Yeah, so, um, um, you know, meta-analyses that has been that has been conducted, what, what were we talking about? I <laughs> just quickly explain what meta-analysis, but I, I think probably where I jump in again is to say for a lot of people will be wondering, so what is hypnosis good for? You know, what, what are the key things? Because most people will think smoking, weight loss, yeah, I mean, ironically, both of those two areas, we actually suffer as far as the evidence is concerned. So, so just coming back to, to, to one of your points that you made earlier, by the way, you know, that hypnosis itself is, is more of a vehicle for, for, for other therapeutic um, um, interventions. You're quite right. So hypnosis just on its own, what's often referred to in neuroscience as neutral hypnosis, actually do, do, does very little. Um, mm. I mean, it's been proven to do very, very little. Um, um, what it does when you add suggestion to it, so neutral hypnosis plus suggestions, um, it starts to amplify that stickiness of these suggestions. Um, and then hypnosis plus, you know, pre-existing therapeutic interventions starts to advance the efficacy. You know, it has a, um, a magnifying effect. So you, your question then was, what, 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 what's, what's, what is it good for? You know, probably the areas that we have the most amount of evidence for is uh, the reduction of pain, something that mm. you, you know a great deal about, probably more than me about. Anxiety reduction, insomnia, functional gastro-related uh, um, issues. Um, so, so that is um, um, irritable bowel syndrome in particular, you know, um, um, since the 1980s when hypnosis was an evidence um, uh, appeared in, in a research paper appeared in the Lancet uh, that was then built upon over the, uh, over the past few decades. And um, we've got a really impressive body of evidence to support that. You know, there are pediatric applications that are really good, but, but typically the evidence for stopping smoking and weight reduction isn't that good. With, with weight reduction, hypnosis plus suggestion isn't really that good for weight reduction. Hypnosis plus a kind of multifaceted, multi-component treatment plan that involves you know, behavior therapy, cognitive components, and, and a wide variety of other things over a lengthy period of time, without a doubt, is, is, is impressive. But hypnosis on its own is not really that that good. Same goes for stopping smoking. And, and here we have one of one of the big challenges that people like myself face with the hypnotherapy field and the hypnotherapy community. Because there's been this, you know, since the 1980s, there's been this sort of characteristic stop smoking in a single session. Single session smoking cessation. And, and it's and, and it's heavily marketed still today. And the evidence shows that more sessions are better. You know, the science shows that more sessions are better. But very few hypnotherapists are aware of that science and instead have been sold on the idea of single session stop smoking. And, and you know, the, the success rates are really not very good for that. You know, that, that typically if you look at, you know, more meta-analyses um, um, of stopping smoking and, and um Stop, um, stopping smoking with hypnosis, it's, it's lower than, than 50%. You know, usually 35, between 35 and 55% is, is, is pretty good for hypnosis. So that is one in two people. Therapists ought to be able to raise that because they ought to be able to do a better job than clinical trials because they, they can add you know, a, a therapeutic relationship, they can add expectation, people are paying for it. So there's a number of kind of extra 
therapeutic factors that should contribute to, to higher success rates in the clinical environment. But, but ultimately, you know, it, it's quite an advanced application of hypnosis. Yet for some strange reason, it's, it's, it's done in the shortest possible time by the vast majority of hypnotherapists, but by, by offering this single, single session. Um, it's, it's bizarre and just kind of shows how much ignorance there is among the hypnotherapy field itself. Um, I, and I, I realize I'll, I will win no friends by saying that. But also it begins to, to, to kind of misinform the public about hypnosis and, and, and what it can do as well. Because a lot of people go and, go and see people, for, 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 you know, go and see a hypnotherapist for a single stop smoking session. Perhaps, you know, it, it, it's not successful because statistically, the, well, I mean, the, the statistics are against them and, and, and therefore write off hypnotherapy. You know, pa, it's, 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 it's no good. It's, it, you know, it didn't help me. And that's another thing. A lot of people turn up for hypnotherapy thinking that hypnotherapy is done to them. Whereas mm. rather than it being a, a wholly collaborative process, where they're required to be an active agent in the process, you know. Um, and, I th you know, I encounter a lot of people who are quite bothered by that. Well, you know, what, what's the point in hypnosis, Adam, if I've actually got to do stuff? You know, surely I just turn up, sit in the chair, you shazam me, and ta-da, I'm better. That's the reason I wanted hypnosis, because I don't want to have to do stuff. I don't want to have to sort of exert my will in any way. Mm. And, and, you know, it, it, it's made much more effective as a result of the collaboration. And that involves some, some kind of re-education on part of the individual that's working, working with us. I think probably the subconscious unconscious model ties into that idea of it being quite it really lazy. Does. It's 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 very much like the trust your gut kind of thing we talk we hear about in coaching and therapy kind of stuff. It's lazy. It doesn't involve any further critical thinking beyond that, looking at heuristics, biases. And I think there's a whole load of that that comes with our field, broadly speaking, that Absol people look, look for the easiest approach, which is often trust your intuition. That never goes wrong. Never goes wrong. Mm. Though no evidence suggests that whatsoever. But, but there's a detachment of there's a detachment of any responsibility taking at that point as well. Mm. You know, if you equip someone with the skill of hypnosis instead, um, and the mindset by which to apply it effectively. This also does, has the byproduct of raising self-efficacy. And self-efficacy is something that, that, that you can't develop if, 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 you're, if, if you're giving responsibility to this sort of benevolent entity that so-called so exists within you. Self-efficacy, for those that are not aware, is a very evidence-based principle, which is simply that the more you believe in your abilities to do something, the more you raise that ability to actually do that thing. You know, it's, it's, it's a kind of learned optimism, as, um, um, as a, what, what, what one of my heroes would say. If you raise self-efficacy, and, and that is, you know, somebody, somebody starts to believe in themselves much more, then you, then you raise the benefits of, of, of any therapy, um, but in particular, hypnosis. And, and, you know, one of the things we found with, with, with my own research is that, you know, a byproduct of, of self-hypnosis is, is a raise of self-efficacy anyway, because they start to recognize, yeah, I'm doing this. I'm doing this thing. I'm, you know, I'm responsible for creating this, this change that's quite clearly going on within me right now. And that, um, you know, helps embolden people, helps, you know, equip them, makes them, makes them better at dealing with um, whatever the, the therapeutic issue is. Cool. Well, I'm going to go more into your research in a moment. Just one final question that I think I've, I get asked a lot, and you could probably answer it better than me, but what is the difference, say, between, say, a mindfulness-based meditation and hypnosis? What, what's the, uh, well, the key differences and similarities? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, it, neuroscientifically, th th there's not a huge amount of difference to be found as far as what parts of the brain are, are being used with neutral hypnosis and mindfulness, for example. But the way in which I explain it, because I am asked this a great deal, is that you know, self-hypnosis or, um, or hypnosis tend to be much more goal-directed and are much more variable and, and it's much more portable. 
um, you know, mindfulness will have you ha have you on a particular. You know, it doesn't necessarily have a big kind of goal directed application, but but you know, similar parts of the brain are being used. Um, but ultimately, it it just has far wider variety of applications. It's far far more portable, and doesn't necessarily require the same kind of conditions that that mindfulness would but but primarily it's much more much more goal oriented much more goal directed um rather than you know a, a singular perspective and and awareness development and um you know mindfulness is wonderful mindfulness is absolutely wonderful it has its place um in in therapy <clears throat> but but by real merit and you know we teach a lot of hypnosis in conjunction with mindfulness these days as well uh, you know, using mindfulness as a way of, of 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 kind of developing and marrying up with with some applications of of hypnosis, and in particular with with mindful exposure techniques and strategies, for example. But all of that said, you know, using you, the, the applications of of mindfulness, you know, you 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 can use it to 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 perhaps you know, if we looked at your own speciality of of pain reduction with with hypnosis. Um, you know, certainly mindfulness has been has been shown to, to to reduce kind of latent pain and kind of day to day suffering. But, um, you know, I would much rather equip a client with hypnosis or self hypnosis skills to reduce surgical pain than than using than using mindfulness in a surgical environment. Mm. Um, um, if anything, heightening your awareness of certain sensations is is going to have the, the opposite effect. To, to the kind of anesthesia analgesia type of responses that, that hypnosis will give you yeah i i think that's a, a lovely sort of differentiation between the two i certainly when i've used mindfulness now because mindfulness and meditation seem to be more publicly acceptable terms at the moment so there's a greater belief set around those oh, things. absolutely far better pr yeah, the PR, PR of hypnosis has been difficult. And, you know, as you've alluded to, I, I, I run a pain clinic. Many doctor referred for clinical hypnosis and, and mindfulness, which I don't actively advertise now because it, it draws a lot of people's misconceptions. And I rather that medical professionals refer to me. But actually, mindfulness is a really nice starting in point because you can use that as an induction. So it's something familiar to them, the idea of starting focusing on the breath or a body scan or something like that. So it has helped in that way of familiarizing, saying it is different, but we can use things that you may be familiar with. But the PR for mindfulness-based meditation to the PR of hypnosis is very different in the public consciousness. And I think the only people that can really be held accountable for that ironically other hypnotherapists yeah absolutely i, I mean you 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 explained it and i know about um, um a lot of these things you know it, um, probably more comprehensively than i do in in that kind of environment mm. um um and and you know the, 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 without a doubt a couple of the things that i would say with regards to to the kind of environment that you find yourself in um, is that um, you know the, the fact that you are the fact that you're being referred by doctors first of all has has a really impressive hypnotic effect I think and mm. creates a lot of the expectation that that we were talking about um, I think um, w which really advances really advances effects but one of the things I think is 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 a really interesting challenge that you also face is that a lot of the people that come to see you are not necessarily paying, you know, because they've been, they've been referred um, um, sometimes, and and so so perhaps don't necessarily have the, the same kind of uh, uh, investment mindset that that some people have. So you know, I really kind of doff doff my cap to you in in, in that regard. It's really nice of you to say, but I've always operated as a private practice, and so they've always paid. I have seen, ah. I have seen, yeah, I know the halo slips. Um, yeah. I, ha I have yeah. seen, I have seen patients through the NHS once or twice, and this would probably be unpopular, but the mindset of a patient who pays privately to get better is very different to one who doesn't have to pay. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's true I, I, across absolutely. health generally. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I have lots of people that say to me, um, oh, I went for CBT on the NHS and it doesn't work. 
Mm. And lots of hypnotherapists get a bit kind of narky towards CBT because, you know, they say, oh, everybody that comes to see me has told me that CBT doesn't work for them. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, but the people that it did work for aren't going to come and see you, are they? But also they're not paying. Um, they're not paying. And, and when people are not paying, then sometimes that their investment of themselves is, is, is left wanting. Yeah. Um, just to clear the abbreviation CBT, that's Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. I once gave a talk. Um, to a group of, <laughs> yeah. I, I once gave a group of uh, uh, nurses a talk to about um, hypnosis and CBT and every time I said CBT there was this ripple of laughter that went around the little semicircle and I thought, <laughs> what, uh, have I got something on my face have my flies undone yeah. something like that and ended the talk well, once I, it wasn't that no I, I literally had all the tackle in the trousers um, and I said to one of the nurses I said look did you enjoy that? She said, oh, yes. Uh, I think she was lying. And I said, like, every time I said CBT, you all laughed. What was that about? She said, oh, the CBT, doesn't that stand for cock and ball torture? So, <laughs> um, yeah, just to clear up, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. Don't, don't get it mixed up. Um, easily yeah. done on the internet late at night. So I want to kind of quickly come back to your research at the moment. So you're doing your PhD yeah. uh, specifically in the area of self-hypnosis, which is your forte. Yeah. So, you know, um, um, so we, we, we published, um, myself and a colleague at Bournemouth University, we published the, the first ever meta-analyses um, and statistical analysis of clinical applications of self-hypnosis. The, the first people in history to do that, um, um, as well as you know, seeking to, to get some peer review on, on what we believed self-hypnosis to be and what the evidence said up until that point. And, and, and what grew out of this was a protocol, a very particular protocol that we're then taking into the, the, the experimental environment. Uh, it surprises me how few hypnotherapists um, know about something called the Stroop effect. Okay, now, um, if you've ever played brain training apps, the likelihood is that you've encountered a, uh, the Stroop effect. So the Stroop task, um, we sort of frame it as a computer game. And you sit in front of a computer and you have four or five buttons in front of you, all different colored. So uh, red, green, blue, yellow, for example, and um, words show up on the screen and you are tasked with pressing the button that, um, that, that, that identifies the color of that word. If the word red flashes up on the screen and it is in the color red, if, if it is red ink, it takes you, you know, next to no time to press the red button. If um, a neutral word comes up like cow and it is the color red, it takes you very, very slightly longer, but ultimately it's very quick to do it. If, however, the word green comes up onto the screen and it's the word red, you are busy reading and responding to the word that you've read. And there's some confusion in the anterior cingulate cortex, which means that there is a delay a delay for you to decipher between what you're reading and the color of the ink. So even though you're reading the word green, it takes you a, a split second longer to recognize that it's the color red and for you to press the red button. This delay is a, like, a, like a, 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 a proven importance to cognitive, um, cognitive neuroscience. Because, and, and this delay was discovered by a man called Mr. Stroop, and that's why it's referred to as the Stroop effect. Now, back in the late 80s and early 90s, a man called Amir Raz and a, a, a number of colleagues did a series of experiments um, and, and delivered a suggestion for word blindness to people engaging in the Stroop task. And, and by hypnotizing them and then giving these word blindness suggestion, standardized piece of text that said that you will find that the words that come up um, onto the screen are just gibberish. They make no sense whatsoever. You see beyond the word and you just recognize the color. Words to that effect. And what they found was that this inhibited and virtually removed the Stroop effect, that the delay that it took to press the button. So first and foremost, what this proved and what this showed 
was that hypnosis is a thing. Okay, so for anybody that watches TV and, and says, ah, hypnosis is all just compliance, for example, which a lot of the TV, a lot of TV entertainment of hypnosis actually is, but 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 for people that say that hypnosis is is just compliance, this proved that that was incorrect because it proved you you can't just you can't pretend to be inhibiting the Stroop effect. You, mm. know? you, can't, you, you can't act that out. You can't just be being compliant. So first of all, it proved that hypnosis was a thing. And it, it, had, it had a number of other theoretical connotations as well, which I shan't bore you with today. But so, so one of the things that we were doing, um, um, our first experiment was to, to, to use hypnosis. We were the first ever people to use self-hypnosis. The reason this becomes quite a conundrum is because when you self-suggest something, when you, when you suggest something to yourself, you are aware of what it is you're attempting to do. So, for example, a lot of stage hypnotists or street hypnotists do, do amnesia or name amnesia. Okay, you know, when I click my fingers, the, your, your name just disappears and you struggle to remember it. If you're doing that with yourself, okay, Adam, you forget that your name is Adam. You know, it's kind of coded into you. It's very difficult to do that to yourself and for yourself because the thing that you are suggesting has just become apparent that you're attempting to forget. So similarly, if you're attempting to inhibit the Stroop effect, you're giving yourself a series of suggestions, you know what the suggestion's aiming to do. So it becomes slightly more challenging. However, we, you know, we began to show that um, um, by adopting the, a favorable hypnotic mindset, these modulating factors that we were talking about, we were able to, to, to recreate the same inhibition, the, the same inhibition of the Stroop effect. Our, our subsequent experiments are taking, now that we've proven that it's a thing, is now applying that to, to some other unique areas where there've been very little research previously. Um, and in particular, that is through the testing of muscular strength. Um, we're, we're testing mus muscular strength at Bournemouth University um, sports department at the moment um, and where people are, are bench pressing their absolute maximum, then applying self-hypnosis and seeing if they can bench press much more. There's um, 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 a single study that's gone before us that, that used hetero-hypnosis and we sort of bettered that design, applied our own protocol and that's what we're doing at the moment. Some of the other really interesting things as far as self-hypnosis is concerned, not just the kind of theoretical implications that I mentioned earlier about dissociation, but also, you know, it's, when we talk about self-hypnosis, we're talking wholly self-regulated, self, you know, you know, independent of another person, but independent of an external guidance whatsoever. So whenever we hear about audios being referred to as self-hypnosis, because you are by yourself, an audio isn't really self-hypnosis because it's not self-regulated. It's not self-directed. You're not creating self-suggestions that you're delivering to yourself. You're being guided by, by another voice. In the meta-analysis of the clinical studies, the 22 studies that made out the final cut of our inclusion criteria, three of them were what were deemed sort of failures, clinical failures that, that, that did not outperform the control groups. Um, one of them, which actually was conducted by our very own NHS um, in the field of obstetrics um, in 2015 is a big study, um, 700 research participants in the field of obstetrics and, and could find no, could, could, could really find that, 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 that what they referred to as self-hypnosis could not outperform conventional medical care, standard medical care. Um, as far as reduction of pain was concerned and, and, and some other, you know, the, the, the timing of labor and so on. But when you look closer at the study, the, the, what they deemed to be self-hypnosis was actually a standardized recording. You know, it's kind of spoon-fed recording that they listened to twice. Self-hypnosis to be effective needs to be wholly self-regulated, not guided by somebody else. So the studies where, where they had been self-regulated in the field of obstetrics actually showed an effect. And so one of the interpretations that we were in a position to be able to make there is, well, well maybe self-hypnosis is better than hetero-hypnosis 
in the field of obstetrics. Um, you know, it's 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 a kind of loose interpretation, but but you know, it, it's it's credible nonetheless. Um, and th th there's a number of other other similar things. You know, we we began to show that if you if you had self hypnosis prior to your first ever experience of hetero hypnosis, you you typically became better, a better, more responsive subject when engaged in hetero hypnosis. When the reverse was true, so that is typically the way in which self-hypnosis is taught in the clinical environment by hypnotherapists or psychologists is that it's taught as part of or an adjunct to the heterohypnosis that they've experienced. Typically when heterohypnosis has been the precursor to self-hypnosis, it, it reduces the effectiveness of self-hypnosis and typically because people are kind of borrowing a, a memory of heterohypnosis and revivifying that and, and making out that that is self-hypnosis, whereas pure self-regulated experiences are, are, are something else. I mean, heck, there's, there's lots more, lots more findings, lots more that we could go on about. But, um, you know, I want uh, I don't want people dribbling down themselves right now listening to this podcast. I'm sure they're dribbling um, anyway. Um, so <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just talking about myself there. Um, so can anyone hypnotize themselves? Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely. You know, um, I, I, I think. You know, we mentioned earlier that, that things like mindfulness and ACT have a far better PR than, than the field of hypnosis. Hypnosis is so much myth and misconception around it. And, and I think when we, when we position it as trance or altered states of consciousness um, um, and working with the subconscious mind, these kind of very typical um, types of notions, it tends to really muddy the waters and it makes it seem much more complex. And if people don't have these kind of wild, wild type of trippy experiences, you know, they, they, they think that they've done it wrong, for example, or that they're not responsive to hypnosis. I think one of the key, the key things that, 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 I'm, that I'm keen to do with, with both my research and with, with my teaching in general um, is, to, is, is to kind of undersell hypnosis and let it overperform. Um, and, and, and that is, you know, to be sober about it, to, to, to pitch it in ordinary terms so that, you know, so that everybody knows that anybody can do it. One of the reasons, you know, we're, we're teaching and I'm teaching the self-hypnosis to um, a series of family therapists and psychologists at the Great Ormond Street Hospital currently. And one of the things that, that they're really taken with is this idea that, you know, children can just learn it as a skill. You know, even really sick children can just learn it as a skill and reduce their pain, um, you know, and reduce like severe cancer pain, for example. You know, I, I wouldn't be so bold or so irresponsible as to say that it can just replace analgesia or anesthesia or, or you know, drug, drug med, uh, medication for, for their pain, but it, it can reduce a lot of the need for it and give them some comfort at the right times. But, you know, if, if even a child can, can learn that, that, that's really sick, then, then you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's indicative of how applicable, portable and usable self-hypnosis is. It's a very ordinary skill that anybody can learn in the same way that anybody can learn any skill. Of course, some people are likely to be better suited to it initially. My brother, for example, just a whiz at maths. And, you know, so if him and I both had the 10,000 hours of maths training and practice required to get to genius levels, so-called, he would probably still be better than me at the end of those 10,000 hours. But, you know, my ability would still raise massively. And, and, and that's very much the case. Um, some people are likely to be slightly better suited. Um, some people are likely to, that their beliefs about themselves are likely to, to, to infringe or, or impinge rather upon their, their skills. But ultimately it's, it's a very ordinary process that anybody can learn. Um, so yes is the answer to that question. Cool, thank you. And is there a way you could teach a very simple method here for the listeners to try for of self-hypnosis yeah 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 so you know ultimately what i would suggest and and, and um i mean you, you can go you can go and google my my, my uh, uh, i've got um, a 20 minute crash course 
that's a free video on my YouTube channel, a Hypnosis Geek YouTube channel. It's got, I don't know if I'm allowed to plug. I, I don't you know if that's going to make the final edit of this podcast or not. Um, this isn't you know, the BBC. laughing at me at the moment. <laughs> but, 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 but there is. And, and, and we do a kind of roadmap. And, and, um, and so I have this roadmap document that we give all of our participants in research. And one of the things that, they're, that they're, they are tasked to do is to make a pen stick to their hand, okay? Um, when we're testing people for hypnotizability, we are ultimately um, um, giving them a set of skills to practice, um, to practice and to get better at. So the first thing to do is to find yourself in a kind of comfortable, safe place where you can, where you can kind of, you know, where you are not going to be distracted for a period of time. And you'll sit and sit upright. And I firmly recommend that you don't lie down to do self-hypnosis because, you know, you ultimately, unless, unless you're using self-hypnosis to go to sleep. Um, because you, you you associate beard with sleeping and so on. And, and you, you've got to be aware. You've got to be engaged and you've got to be present with yourself. You take a couple of deep breaths and then you, you, you have your back upright, crown of your head pointing up towards the ceiling and fix your, your attention on a spot on the wall or the ceiling and then follow it upwards. Let your eyes roll upwards. Don't move your head. Don't move your head upwards. Keep everything still. The aim is to see if you can get, get your gaze pointed on the wall or the ceiling in a way that is going to fatigue the eyelids and make your eyelids feel heavier so you get to a point where it's very slightly uncomfortable to fix your to fix your your gaze there and then um, to, to, to imagine your eyelids getting heavier imagine them getting heavier now this is not a kind of endurance competition it's not sort of um, um, an endurance competition how long you can keep your eyes open the main aim is to fixate your 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 psychology to fixate and and focus in on a singular point to, to the exclusion of everything else. So you just fix your eyes on that particular point. Imagine your eyelids getting heavier, which they're going to be doing anyway. And then when you're ready to begin, you just let them close. When you let them close, imagine you've also got like a psychological eyelid, like a, like a mind's eye. Um, and, and, and just start to imagine You've got a, a, a mind's eye that the eyelid is getting heavier there as well. And that gradually that begins to close and that shuts out more of your thoughts. And then ultimately, we want you to kind of adopt this mindset, adopt this favorable mindset. If I, you know, I, I, Mark can see currently that I'm holding a pen. Um, if you're listening to this, obviously you, you cannot see that. Um, but if you imagine me holding a pen right now, if I were to let go of that pen, you just know what's going to happen to it. It's just going to fall to the floor. Okay. You just know that. What we want is for you to adopt a similar sense of I just know with regards to the outcome that we want, which ultimately is going to be for you to stick. Imagine a pen being stuck to your hand. So you start to you, you start to be convinced of that. You expect it, have a certain sense of expectation, a sense of belief that it's going to happen. Imagine it happening in your mind. Tell yourself that it's going to happen. Tell yourself over and over the mantra of I, I just know it's going to happen. Um, and then start to, to, to hold the pen, hold your arm out at shoulder length, full out, fully out in front of you, straight, pointing the pen downwards and start to tell yourself, I am going to drop this, but I cannot. I cannot. I am going to drop this, but I cannot. I cannot. And the reason you want to keep with a, with a cognition happening inside of your mind is to, is to busy your mind and distract yourself in, in, you know, to, to, so that you don't have any space for negative thoughts to come in and doubt to come in and start talking yourself out of it. In order to adopt a favorable hypnotic mindset, you've got to know that the pen is stuck. Just know it. Create your own reality. Self-regulate it. The same way that you just know a pen's going to drop to the floor. So just believe it to be your truth. Imagine it to be the truth. Imagine it happening. Imagine it being stuck. Tell yourself it's stuck. And then test it. Attempt to let go. Realize you can't. And then you comfortably bring it to an end. Um, and stop thinking the thoughts. Imagine it falling, imagine it dropping, relax your arm and put it down and count from one to five to bring that to an end. That's about as succinct as I can put that particular exercise. 
but but you know go ahead the idea is that you convince yourself you know emotionally invest yourself so that you convince yourself and know it to be your truth create your reality and quite a lot of people say to me yeah but that's hard that's tough to do that it seems tough and it seems hard because it is unusual but actually we we, we, we do this exact process to our detriment lots of times every day um say for example we take somebody who has has a, a phobia of dogs who is scared of dogs and are walking through a park one day and 200 meters across the park on the other side uh, it is is somebody walking a chihuahua and it's on a lead and it's a small dog and it's there now upon seeing that dog the person with the phobia starts to starts to believe um, starts to starts to imagine themselves being hurt in some way or or frighten themselves starts to tell themselves they just know that they are scared that they've basically applied that they, they expect to be scared they basically applied the mindset of hypnosis except in in reverse to their detriment it's affecting them negatively and this happens automatically to lots of us all the time every day what I'm suggesting that you do is that you apply the same I just know, the same expectation, the same engaging of the imagination and apply it all to the process of imagining that the pen is stuck to your hand. Even if you believe it just for a couple of seconds, that's enough to then build upon and to practice. And you start having some evidence that you've created you know, a very real hypnotic effect. And you've got some, you know, some, something to convince you of the effect. Thanks, Adam. I'll put all your sort of materials in the show notes so people can go through that and practice themselves should they wish. Yeah, the um, the, the roadmap, for example, um, um, it, it's a completely free PDF that people can follow to do the exercise um, that I've just explained in lots more detail. And then there are some other bits to it. Um, so um, I'll include a link to that. Thanks, Adam. Now I'm mindful of your time now. So we'll just close on the the usual standard gimmick that everyone closes on if you could recommend one book and it doesn't have to be about hypnosis or self-hypnosis that you have written a book about self-hypnosis you might as well slip that one in yeah yeah but by the you, you way plugged I, everything I else books. i mean you I plugged everything else books. adam <laughs> i've written two books on self-hypnosis um and the first one i strongly recommend you do not buy at, 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 under any circumstances do not buy it um if you want a really good book on self-hypnosis then the science of self-hypnosis um slightly more recent i wrote that one in 2015 yeah i, I would invest in that but the question was, yeah, maybe any the, other book. Any other book that you, you haven't written? <laughs> okay, um, um, that I would recommend as far as hypnosis is concerned. But as far as self-hypnosis, yeah, anything, self anything, go on, any book, because <laughs> you'll get back to your bloody book again. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, 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 the reality is that as far as self-hypnosis is concerned, uh, the vast majority of books out there as far as self-hypnosis is concerned, if you're not an academic, are, are myth and misconception and nonsense. Mm. So, so it, it's, it's hard for me not to plug anything other than my own science of self-hypnosis book. As far as hypnosis is concerned, again, I'm not into people buying kind of um, spending money on books that... You know, I, I think if you're going to be into hypnosis and you're going to study hypnosis, potentially become a hypnotherapist, then buy really good quality textbooks and reference books that you're going to refer back to, um, um, such as something like the, the Oxford Handbook of Hypnosis, which I love, I, I, I adore. But yeah, otherwise, you know, buy Ray Dalio's Principles. There you go. You know, that's a good, that's good a, book. That's or, a good book. Or, or Factfulness. That's um, a nice one. Um, um, is 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 a great book. Or, or Daniel Kahneman. I mentioned Daniel Kahneman earlier. Um, thinking fast and thinking slow. His book all about cognitive biases and heuristics. Yeah, that's it's a great book. I actually heard him interviewed recently, saying that even though you can be aware of cognitive biases in hindsight, yeah, you still can't see them whilst you're doing them. They are you are literally blind most of the time until you can go back and say, ah, that that was this particular fallacy yeah yeah absolutely. in my mind it's quite interesting it's quite absolutely. scary it, it is scary and, and and you know when we if we're just going to kind of encourage people especially patients mental health patients to to just trust themselves um you know i think that's a highly irresponsible thing given the amount of science to support how destructive heuristics and cognitive biases can mm. be especially you know when they're happening you know automatically as they do 
Yeah, I, especially if you look at someone, say, with obsessive compulsive thoughts. Yeah. Just, tr just trust it. Yeah, trust. Switch that light switch, or otherwise your family's yeah. going to die. You know, it, when you exactly. the, these tropes and self help, when you actually logically apply them to the real world, they don't they don't really make a lot of sense. Anyway, uh, is there one message you could share to the world apart from buy your book? <laughs> that, that wasn't even my message earlier. I feel, I feel bad. No, I'm um, joking. Uh, I am joking. Adam and I go back a long way, so I'm only just I'm just pulling his plums. Yeah, yeah. The um, 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 no, 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 no. I don't really have a message. Like you put me on the spot a little bit there. Um, I, I don't have a really good message to say. Like, like part of me, part of me did want to say stay classy, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I kind of feel that 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 wasn't really in keeping with the kind of you know the the, the kind of wisdom uh, that you were that you were seeking. Um, no, that that's that stay maybe, classy. Maybe yeah, maybe I'll I'll, I'll dig something out. I'll <laughs> dig something out that you can add to the course. The, to the, the post. That you can add to the show notes. This is the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 that, that is that is one of my current favourites. As it happens. Just to finish up, obviously you actually teach as well. You have your own school, which is how I first got involved with hypnosis and hypnotherapy and everything I know. So it really is due to you so it's you to blame for that <laughs> but can you just tell us about your school quickly and what you teach and the types of courses you offer people yeah one of the things one of the things that the central ethos of, of, what, of, of what i consider to be good education but that, that is at the heart of, of of my training college is that we don't just teach a singular perspective we don't say this is this and that's that you know, instead we say, look, look, here's the evidence to support this. Here's the here's the criticism of it. Now you are grown up enough to adopt your own leaning from there. Of course, you know, I, I cannot remove myself and and my own leaning from all of that teaching. But I ask everybody to apply critical thinking to everything they're taught and question it as much as possible, then draw upon their own experience. I ask everybody to apply Shoshin, um, which is to, to be able to adopt the beginner's mind, as they say in Zen Buddhism, you know, where you where you park um, 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 all your pre-existing understanding and knowledge and put it to one side because you're likely to have your feathers ruffled by some of the ways in which we, we present hypnosis because what we question a lot of a lot of common thought um, and and a lot of people rather than thinking ah maybe there's some more to learn in this field very often think ah adam's a dick uh, <laughs> because he's you know I'm, I'm affronted by the fact that he's questioning my previous learning so we ask everybody to adopt Shoshin. We, we, we're firm believers in both sides of any debate, argument, philosophy, um, and, and theory. And we teach a really robust hypnotherapy diploma. We teach self-hypnosis courses and a whole load of CPD stuff as well. And it's the Anglo-European College of Hypnosis uh, down here in the eternally sunny Bournemouth. Fantastic. Thank you. And thank you for all your time. I really appreciate it. Ah, oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>